Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. My guest today is Dylan William. Dylan William is an emeritus professor of educational assessment at University College London and has had a long career in education both in the UK and abroad. Dylan is probably best known for his work on assessment, particularly formative assessment, but is insightful across the board. Dylan William, welcome to The Report Card. Great to be here. So, Dylan, you've done a lot of work on assessments, particularly formative assessments, and you've done some of this work internationally, right, across U.S. contacts, U.K., Singapore, Sweden, uh, you know, the list goes on. Um, so I wanted to talk about some international assessments to start with, and of course, the piece of results have recently come out. Students in OECD countries, so again, just looking across the many countries that are included in this test of 15-year-olds on reading math and science, we see that scores went down a little in science, a little bit further in reading, quite a bit in math. Um, From your perspective, what should people understand from these assessments? How important are they? What do you know from PISA that you didn't know a week before? I think the results are worse than we expected, simply because in many countries where they've been tracking the effects of disruptions caused by uh, COVID, that we thought we were pretty much back to where we were before COVID. And many countries are reporting local test data that suggests that the recovery is is nearly complete, if not actually complete. Um, Obviously, kids from disadvantaged homes have gone down further than kids from advantaged homes. But I think the big surprise for me was that particularly in the US, but and also in many other European countries, the decline has been really quite sharp. I mean, it wasn't actually fine before. So there were de- steady declines in many countries beforehand. But what we now have is a kind of mismatch between what PISA is telling us and what local test data is telling us. And that really brings into focus the question of what is PISA actually measuring? And that is a big question that I don't think anybody has a complete handle on. So what do you make about the math declines, right? Like there were some declines in reading and science, but the math declines were dramatic. How do you make sense of that? And these are the pandemic declines. I mean, you know, Iceland dropped like 38 points or something ridiculous like that. And in the U.S., we dropped 13 points. A lot of people will say, well, it could have been worse in the U.S. Uh, Why do you think math took a greater hit during the pandemic? I really don't know. One of the problems with math, with PISA in general, is although people say it measures reading, math, and science, what they actually say is they develop, is they test reading literacy, math literacy, and science literacy. So the questions in PISA typically are ability, testing ability to reason with information that's given to you. So it does a much um, different job from tests like the trends in mathematics and science study, TIMS, or the PEARLS tests, which tend to test the kind of facility with uh, mathematical scientific skill. So I I don't really know exactly what's gone wrong here, but it does look like maybe it's a confidence thing. Students have have lost practice in just thinking on their feet. The trouble with all these things, with PISA, you've got too many variables and too few data points. And everybody's got lots of theories about what's going on. But until you can come up with a good theory that says, well, what was going on in Iceland that caused twice as big a drop as there was in the US? Until you have that thing that medics call a differential diagnosis, we're just telling just so stories, really. We're just speculating about what the causes might be. Well, I want to ask you more about that reliability in in a moment. But one last thing about these PISA scores, and we've seen this in the US and other tests, too. You know, everybody's looking at, admittedly, big, big drops on PISA and less so on PISA in the U.S., but internationally, that look quite attributable to the pandemic. But actually, the declines had a earlier start than the pandemic in a lot of these places. Um, So for folks who are seeing, wow, it looks like there was a decline and then there was a decline over top of the decline to the pandemic. How do you sort out these trends, which really differ from what we had seen in the 20 years prior to that? I don't think you can. I mean, I think that the the difficulty is that you've got countries like Finland, which were touted in 2006 because they were doing very well, and their results have gone down in every single PISA since then. 
So my, my guess is that this is just a continuation of a steady trend in most rich countries, certainly Europe and the United States, and even Canada, and maybe exacerbated by COVID, maybe exacerbated by responses to COVID. So maybe we were so desperate to try to kind of recover from COVID-related learning loss that we've actually done a whole range of things that are just not effective in terms of helping kids learn more. Uh, you know, there's, it's very hard to know exactly what's going on, but anybody who says that they know what's going on, I think, doesn't take the data seriously enough. It's just so complicated. And there's so many different possible plausible explanations that I think we, we certainly won't know quickly, and we may never know exactly what's going on here. So when you ask folks about PISA tests and the TIMS test, Trends in Math and Science, and PEARLS, the reading test, a lot of times when you ask big questions about a big test, I mean, 600,000 kids, I think, took this test. That's a, that's a lot That's a lot of time invested, energy invested. And then at the end, for good reason, you get a lot of comments like, well, you know, it's sort of hard to know about the why. Um so what does that tell you about the value proposition of all this effort around PISA and these international assessments? I mean, how much juice do we get out of the squeeze? Very little, I would argue. So first of all, there's the issue about what the tests are testing. There's some quite credible research studies that show that basically PISA is a sophisticated form of IQ test. In other words, if it was measuring the quality of math and science and literacy instruction in different countries you'd find systematic differences in countries between their scores on math and reading and science. And that's not what the data show. The data show basically a single effect uh, with some perturbation. The second thing is, we don't know that the tests are translated perfectly. So we do know that when tests are translated from one language to another, it tests can become much harder or much easier depending on the target language and the source language. But I think the thing that people really miss in PISA is they almost always attribute the changes to the education systems in those jurisdictions. And they never control for things like private tuition. So the reason, in my view, that Pacific Rim countries do so well is because those kids are routinely in after-school classes for two, three, four hours every single day. And until we can control for those kinds of effects, I don't think there are any useful policy lessons that PISA can generate. And I, you know, it's a huge multi-million dollar industry, but I don't think it actually tells us very much at all. And the world would not be a worse place if PISA stopped. So in the US specifically, we did have some discrimination between the mass wars, right? And, and I saw this in the papers where op-ed pages would say, and the Secretary of Education said, look, the mass wars were bad, but on reading and science, we didn't actually fall all these other countries did worse. So look, it really wasn't that bad. The pandemic wasn't as devastating as we thought. We should feel good about that. The doubts about what we can read into PISA aside, we do see these different trajectories in the U.S., but help us think through that, right? I mean, what might it tell us about the U.S. context that's different? Again, the math pretty similar, but in reading and science, you see some very differential trends. I think the thing that is useful from PISA, and this is the result of the benchmarking that the OECD has done, is to suggest that a score of around about 420 on PISA is their basic threshold for the level of numeracy and literacy that you need to participate effectively in society. And I think it is useful to have that kind of exercise drawing attention to how many American 15-year-olds are just not ready to participate effectively in society. So I think it's useful for that kind of uh, policy measure. And the fact is that way too many kids are leaving high school without the numeracy and literacy skills they need to participate effectively in society. And that should be a wake-up call for everybody. And it's not just COVID-related. It's been happening for decades. And in that sense, I think PISA is probably more useful than NAEP because NAEP has never been targeted at the kinds of skills you need to participate in the workforce and to actually take control of your own life. They're just more tend typically based on state standards, which aren't as tightly focused on those outcomes. And those NAEP tests are the U.S. tests, right? But they're good for directional indicators, like telling us how kids have done. But you're just saying they're not really linked to anything concrete 
in the way that PISA is. Exactly. So, you know, how well PISA is, is linked is an issue for debate. But I do think that they are telling us something serious about the readiness of American 50-year-olds to thrive in the complex world they're going to enter. So listeners can hear, you spent a good bit of your life in the UK, right? And you have quite a bit of experience in the US. So just to drill down on that UK-US schools comparison, what do you think the UK gets right about education? Again, not necessarily schools, but just the whole kit and caboodle that will load on these PISA tests. Not that I care so much about the differences between their tests, but just from your perspective, having deep familiarity with both countries and systems, what do you think the UK gets right about education that the US gets wrong? I think the UK, I and mean, I think probably we ought to be talking about England and Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales separately because they all have their own systems of education. But if you take England, which is by far the biggest system, then I think the thing that I take from that as being really quite important is the breadth of the curriculum. So in, in secondary schooling, which is typically integrated in England, uh, you, so you'd actually have five or seven years in a post-11 in the same school, that kids will be doing English and math and science and history and geography and art and music and dance and drama. So the idea is that we don't relegate things like art and music and dance and drama to kind of add-ons or co-curricular activities. They are part of the timetable school curriculum. The second point, and I think probably England is not perfect in this regard, and it goes too far to the other extreme, is we measure achievement by externally set, externally graded examinations taken by kids at the age of 16. So the really interesting thing is that in the English system, the teacher is the student's ally. The teacher is trying to help the students clear the bar set by the external examination agency. Whereas in the US, certainly with regard to grade point average, the teacher is positioned as the enemy of the student who actually either gives or withholds grades, which would be useful for college entry, for example. So I think that's quite important. And I think that that's going to be crucial as artificial intelligence makes it easier and easier for kids to pass off somebody else's work as their own. Uh, France, Germany, Japan, England, they're not threatened by AI because the AI isn't available in the examination hall. Whereas I think America is going to have huge issues in terms of how do we know that the kids did it themselves? And, you know, I see AI folks saying that AI will be able to detect AI use. Yeah, but the kids will have access to the same tools. So kids will just... <laughs> take their proposed coursework, feed it into an AI detector. The AI detector will say, you've got 24% AI produced stuff. You need to get that down before you hand it into your teacher. So I don't think there's any way around this. And we're going to have to move towards what are called controlled conditions in other systems. The, the idea is that kids only get credit for work they do in the classroom in front of the teacher. If kids take stuff away, you can't give them any credit for it. On the other hand, I think the U.S. has done a remarkable job of integrating kids with special needs. So I think there's a far stronger push towards getting kids in, with special needs into the same system, into the mainstream system, doing as much as possible the same kinds of things. The, the individual education plans that are mandated by state laws produce a kind of um, inclusiveness that I don't see in any other rich countries. So I think you've written before that. When it comes to education, there's probably more variation within countries than between countries. Now, you've just sketched some pretty big differences between America and the UK. So what do you mean? Like, how do you think about variation being within countries as typically greater than across countries? Well, just the kinds of things that teachers are trying to achieve, the kinds of practices that I see. So, you know, in the UK, as, as in the US, we have this huge debate between people who push for inquiry-based instruction and those who think that there's the best way is explicit or direct instruction. Those debates play out very similarly in many different countries. Um, the, both sides claim to be informed by research. So those debates are pretty much the same. Whether teachers want kids to just learn off for the short term or the long term. So, you know, in the American system, even though the grading system encourages short-term effects, there are many teachers 
who push for much longer-term understanding so that they are seeking long-term conceptual development, even though the assessment system doesn't actually require that. So when, when, when I look in classrooms, when I visit classrooms, I see good practice looking pretty similar in different countries. Sometimes it's because of the system they're in. Sometimes it's despite the system they're in. But those, you know, ultimately, those large-scale variables don't have that much of an impact when you watch an individual lesson. There is one other difference that I think is worth, worthwhile mentioning. In America, typically, if you, if you teach seventh-grade math, you will teach nothing but seventh-grade math. You'll be a seventh-grade math teacher, which means you have one prep a day. But you may not see how what you're doing builds on what kids did in sixth grade and feeds into eighth grade. In the UK, if you're teaching seventh grade, you'll probably also be teaching in the same day a sixth grade, an eighth grade, a ninth grade, and a tenth grade class. And so one of the things I do see is that teachers in England have much more workload because of the preparation they have to do, but they tend to have a greater overview about the, the progression models from one year's content to the next year's content because you're teaching all those things all the time. And how do you think about the trade-offs there, right? I mean, there, there is certainly a greater weight for so many preparations. On the other hand, you certainly want to know where you've been and where you're going. What do you make of the relative advantages of one or the other? I think the conclusion I reluctantly am forced to is that the effects can't be that great because otherwise we'd see much greater differences between England and the US in terms of overall results. So these are quite small effects, I think, compared to the huge impact of overall things like teacher quality. I think teacher quality is a much more significant variable um, and therefore these kinds of practices are kind of second order effects. Sure. I want to talk about tutoring. You started out as a tutor, maybe not quite in the American sense, but you know, you weren't standing in front of a, a classroom. Tell us how you started out as a tutor, what that looked like, and how that shaped your understanding of education. So my first teaching job was in a private residential college, which was basically intended for students who'd failed to get the grades they needed at the age of 16. And it was, it's called a crammer. So they could retake those examinations. And so the largest class I taught was four. And a lot of the kids I taught, I taught individually, one-to-one. -one. And I think that was hugely powerful for me as a developing teacher because I learned to teach before I learned to control crowds. And I see teachers in preparation in the, in the US and the UK and elsewhere who are basically thrown into the deep end and they have to learn to manage a class of 25, 30 35 kids. And they're learning that at the same time as they're learning how to explain concepts. So I think I was very lucky to get that experience of working out how individual students learned before I had to manage a large group. So part of the reason that I find this fascinating is, you know, this is sort of a model that a lot of people in America post-pandemic are calling for, right? Uh, sort of a similar situation. We have a bunch of kids who are behind the thought is we need some intensive tutoring to catch them back up. And it's expensive, right? It takes time, but there are consistent calls for that. Now, that, that hasn't gone as swimmingly as folks have anticipated. But just in terms of its potential for catching kids up after the pandemic, um, what do you think about its potential? And then we can talk about how it might go awry. I think it has huge potential. Uh, I'm skeptical about Benjamin Bloom's original claims about two standard deviations of learning because that research is pretty shaky. But I think that very substantial improvements are possible. And I think that we need to be figuring out how to get this high dosage tutoring, as it's often called, to the students who need it. The problem that I hear about when I talk to superintendents is even when these kinds of interventions are available, they're not taken up. So there's an issue, I think. Maybe it's just a lack of alignment because the strange thing about the American system is because of the grades that are being used aren't benchmarked in any systematic way, parents get told that their kids are getting Bs and therefore they think that everything's okay and therefore they probably won't be pushing for, for, for small group tutoring because they think everything's okay, even though that kid could be two years behind grade level. So I, I don't know what the cause is. That's my best ex 
uh, attempt at an explanation. But uh, I think the evidence is now pretty clear that high dosage tutoring, either done by fully qualified teachers or by college students, because we've got some pretty good examples from North Carolina of teaching aides being very effective at teaching reading, for example. They're not as effective as fully qualified teachers, but they're a lot less expensive. So I think there are lots of models we have now about how we can get people working closely with small groups of students. And the evidence is that that can have a substantial catch-up and enhancement effect. The challenge is how to deliver at scale and how to get people opting into it when it's available. So to throw back to something that we were talking about in the discussion about the difference between the UK and the US, in the UK, there's your level tests, right? Like they're there at the end of secondary school and they're externally done. They do to some degree keep teachers and students honest about the communication because there's an end line to the fibbing, if you will. And in America, the grades, you know, they, they, you kind of get them and they go and the standardized tests don't have the same impact. Do you think that in America, there's just an honesty gap and that we're suffering from it post-pandemic? Well, there's certainly, in my view, an honesty gap, but I'm not sure it ever gets found out. So, you know, we see, we hear, I mean, in my county, in um, Bradford County in Florida, we have kids who are actually getting Bs on Algebra 1 and scoring in the single digits on the end of course test that's set by the state. And so people just, well, it must be the test is unfair or something. So there's a mismatch here. But the thing I find fascinating is that it doesn't cause huge arguments and debates about what's going on here. People seem to accept those teachers' grades. And, you know, this is something that the, the Phi Delta Cap and Gallup polls have shown year after year after year. You know, people think that education in the U.S. is in crisis, but their school is great. Yeah. Um, as a tutor who did a lot of this one-on-one -on -one work, work that many teachers may do on occasion, but won't do as a full-time focus. What is something that you learn in that one-to-one -one setup that tutoring provides that a lot of educators who are used to the classroom practice may just miss? I think the thing that I really learned was the necessity for having lots of possible different explanations for the same concept. See, the idea of trying something and finding it didn't work, and then finding it, even with the same student, something different. And so I think it kind of equipped me with a, a wide range of different ways of explaining the same idea, which enables you to be much more responsive uh, to the situation um, you know, in real time, as opposed to having to figure out, what am I going to do with this kid who doesn't understand this concept? And so is the lack of responsiveness to some degree just built into the scale of classrooms? I mean, do you just not learn it because you can't monitor the response for the student at a level in which you're going to have to come up with multiple explanations? I mean, does it instill bad habits, do you think? Well, I think the starting point is maybe even people who don't even get to that question because the model is aptitude is what proportion of what I taught the kids remembered. Some kids learn it, some kids don't. And we're moving on because we've got a syllabus to cover. We've got a pacing guide in our district. And this was the point that Benjamin Bloom made 50 years ago. We could get far more kids succeeding if we made teaching into a contingent rather than a linear pro process. Let's find out what kids are learning and then adjust our instruction accordingly. And that's basically been the work that I've been doing over the last 40 years in formative assessment. Let's teach the best we can. Let's find out if the students learn it. And then, if necessary, do something about it. The reason people don't even get to that position is because there's no slack in the system. So if I've just taught this unit and some kids haven't got it, my supervisor is telling me I have to move on to the next chapter next week. So the system is kind of designed to make it impossible for teachers to be responsive to student learning needs because of the overfull curriculum and the pacing guide that mandates that certain topics are covered in a certain amount of time. It, uh, it brings to mind that Lucille Ball scene, right, where she's working on the conveyor belt with the candy and is overwhelmed. So you brought up formative assessment. You knew we'd get there, Dylan. Um, so when most people hear assessment and they're not in the assessment game, they think, you know, big standardized tests. Of course, assessment is much bigger than that. But 
Those big standardized tests typically are summative assessments, and you have done most of your work on formative assessments. So lay out just your thumbnail sketch of how those two are different and why we need formative assessments in schools. Well, just to put the record straight, I made full professor uh, many years ago now on my work on summative assessment. Um, But it was just after that that I started working with Paul Black, thinking about well, could, could assessment actually improve instruction as well as evaluate its effects? And so we started with looking at some of the negative impacts of standardized tests on student achievement. We reviewed that research. But then we realized that we were missing a trick because actually assessment happens every day in the classroom. Every time a teacher asks the class a question and makes a decision about whether I need to teach this again or whether I can move on. And so the point that we'd brought, I think, to public attention that people hadn't maybe thought of before was to think about those judgments that the teacher is making about what to do next. Those are assessments. The idea is assessment is all the ways we use evidence to draw conclusions. And it could be about whether this student can go to Harvard or Yale. It could be about whether this topic needs a different approach or a bit of reteaching. And so we got really interested in teachers' instructional decision-making and trying to improve that. So what we saw was teachers asking questions that could be answered correctly with an incomplete understanding. Would your weight be the same on the moon, which most students get correct? Rather than asking a much better question, which is, would your mass be the same on the moon, which most kids get incorrect because they haven't understood the distinction between mass and weight? But then the other thing that we saw was that teachers were pacing their instruction according to the responses of the smartest kids in the room. The teachers would ask a question, six kids would raise their hands, teacher would pick one of them, and if that student supplied a correct response, that teacher would typically say, good, and move on. And so what we've been trying to do is to say to teachers, Let's make better decisions about what to do next by having better evidence about what's going on in the students' heads, better being deeper, asking good questions, and better being broader, getting responses from the whole class rather than just the usual suspects. And even if it's something like asking the class, would your mass be the same on the moon, and just requiring every student to vote yes or no. So it's just getting teachers to get better evidence for their instructional decisions that makes their teaching more responsive to student needs. That's the essence of what I would call formative assessment. So there's two aspects here that I think are really interesting. And and one is just the basic differentiator that formative assessment has a feedback loop into teachers' practice for those kids, right? So summative assessments don't do anything. NAEP does very little for this. PISA does nothing for this, right? It just takes too long. So one is the availability of the information. But the other is that it improves the information because if teachers gauge their pace on the fastest students, dollars to donuts, they're going to leave the low performers behind. Right. And typically what we find, um, and some of the PISA results have shown this, is that one of the strongest predictors of high achievement, this was the science results in the 2015 round, one of the strongest predictors of high achievement in science classrooms was the extent to which teachers used evidence from the class to adjust their instruction to better meet the student learning needs. So this whole idea of shifting from pacing the class according to the fastest learners to getting information about all the learners, it's just about being inclusive, saying every student matters. I can't make a good decision about the learning needs of this diverse group unless I hear from everyone rather than just the confident students. And it's such an obvious thing to do. It's hard because it involves changing classroom habits. And that's what my current work is focused on, is how do you help teachers change habits that have been ingrained as a result of decades of teaching? And of course, for most teachers, by their experience of being a student in a class, even before they started teaching. We just reproduce the things that we see. We just look at those models and we base our practice on our own experiences in that way. So that leads me to a question. How do you change the habits of teachers who are uh, used to what they grew up in and, and, and what their practices are? I mean, where are the leverage points that you think can be used to improve teachers' use of formative assessment 
in a purposeful way where they understand that they're doing it and therefore that they're actually getting better at it and at allowing it to improve their practice? I think the first stage is just trying to create a culture where teachers believe that they can and need to improve. So in many districts, there's differentiated compensation. And so it's all about proving you're a good teacher and maybe trying to weed out the least effective teachers and reward the best teachers. And those things have been remarkably unsuccessful in the US context. And they also create competition between teachers, because if you and I are both up for an award, I'm not going to share any of my good ideas with you because you might actually end up getting the reward rather than me. So the first thing is this idea that everybody needs to improve. And it's a bit unfair on the best teachers, but the fact is so few kids, so so many American kids are not leaving school ready to thrive. They were only going to move the needle if we have every single teacher improving rather than just the one we identify as the weakest. The second is that it turns out to be really difficult to identify the weakest teachers because every teacher builds on the foundations laid by her predecessor. So test scores, even value added, can't measure teacher quality accurately enough. And so you just need to create that idea that everybody needs to get better, not because you're not good enough, because you can get even better. The question then is, better at what? And we think the research we've done on formative assessment shows that that's the, probably the, the highest leverage point. And then I think the crucial thing is understanding how hard it is to change habits and trying to be really, really modest in what we expect teachers to do. So we typically work with groups of teachers and we ask them to change two or three things about their practice. Maybe working on your wait time. The research of Mary Bud Rowe showed the typical middle school science teachers waited less than a second after asking a question before moving on to a different student or supplying a hint themselves. And just realizing how hard it is to change that habit and getting teachers to work on one, one or two techniques for months if necessary. So I think that's where the professional development has gone wrong in the US is we've tried to push teachers too fast and it hasn't actually gelled with their core practice. So the second part of this is to make it stick we ask teachers which particular techniques they would like to work on. So there's a range of different formative assessment techniques that we introduce teachers to. And then we say, well, which one or two of these do you think will work particularly for your students in your context? And because this idea of figuring out what did my students learn is something that most teachers get is part of their day job, then we don't get very much pushback. If an administrator comes in and says, I want to give standardized tests to these kids to check that you are, you are teaching properly, that's always seen as a bureaucratic imposition on the teacher's work. Every teacher I've ever met gets, it's part of their day job to figure out, did my students learn what I just taught them? And so you're almost like pushing at an open door and then giving teachers support and separating out from evaluation. So typically we encourage teachers to support each other. So if you're coming into my classroom, I tell you I'm trying to improve my wait time. I give you a stopwatch and I ask you to measure my wait times for me. But then any notes you make in my classroom belong to me because you're working for me. If I'm in your classroom, any notes I make belong to you because I'm working for you. And by making this process much less high stakes than the traditional performance management that happens in schools, we've actually found quite good take up. Teachers can see this, the benefit of having a peer give them the feedback that they themselves have asked for rather than being imposed on them from outside. So I can understand this. I can also hear a lot of people who want to get things to move at scale saying, well, you know, we could standardize this and we could turn the assessments to formative assessments. Okay. But they'll be rapid and they'll have quick feedback loops. So teachers will know where their students are and those are equivalent across the board. Is there any way to keep value in such formative assessments that are a little bit more formalized, a little bit out of teacher practice without them morphing into a performance management system? I think it's very difficult simply because if you've ever been a teacher, you just don't understand how intense a teacher's daily life is. And so anything that doesn't mesh very tightly into the teacher's daily routines is going to atrophy pretty quickly. So I think we have thought quite carefully about this. So one of the things we've been encouraging is the use of 
high-quality questions. So there's a nice website, www.diagnosticquestions.com, where a lot of teachers have contributed questions. They've got student responses. They've got students' reasons for the responses they've given. And that is a good starting point for teachers to make their teaching just a bit more responsive. So you're teaching a lesson on fractions. You just go to the website. Let me come up with a really one good question. I'm going to use 30 minutes into the lesson to check whether the students are with me. So I think we can do better than just, you know, anything goes. I think we can scale this, but I think it has to be driven by the teachers choosing to use these things. Because my experience of working in the US, Australia, UK, is that if it doesn't integrate into the teacher's daily working routine, it'll, it'll happen when it's being inspected and very quickly it'll just fall away. We have so much evidence of that from previous experiences of professional development. Okay, Dylan, it's time for grade it. Uh, are you ready? Yep. Yeah. Uh, US charter schools. Uh, B, would have been a C. Um, the good news about charter schools is they are no longer making things worse in the U.S. Uh, so, yes, charter schools by themselves, a B, the policy about charter schools is probably a D. It's never going to transform the education system in the United States sufficiently to make a difference to the average level of achievement. What's so the limiting more, factor? I don't know. Uh, good schools, you know, basically, we've got some great charter schools. We've got some mediocre charter schools. We've probably got some pretty poor ones. But the fact is, you know, districts don't like them. Many, many states don't like charter schools. At our current rate of improvement, charter schools, of adoption of charter schools, it's, it's a boutique solution. It's not going to make a difference to the system. So I have no problem with charter schools. They're clearly doing extraordinary things in underserved communities, making a real difference. Uh, some of the research isn't as quite as tight as we'd like it on college enrollment. So these things, these, some of these schools are getting great results up to age 18, but those kids aren't doing quite as well as you might expect, given those results in college. But in, in general, I'm in favor of charter schools, and they're doing much better than they were, but we need to be doing other things as well. Learning English as a second language. It's tricky. So I was brought up speaking Welsh. I didn't speak any English until I was about 10. Welsh is a completely phonetic language, like Spanish. So... I had a terrible problem with English because these words just didn't make sense. I was 18 before I discovered that ships did not birth at a quay. I mean, I, I read a lot, um, but I didn't know how these words were pronounced. And so I think there's probably quite a lot of evidence that being brought up bilingual is helpful, um, even down to uh, cognitive decline in old age. There are cognitive benefits of bilingualism. But... I think that the, the models that we've got, whether we have kids learning uh, in Spanish, for example, in school, I think the real problem that drives all these things in the US is this thing called diglossia. So di bilingualism is two languages. Diglossia is when the different languages have different social status. And I think the interesting thing about Welsh and English in the Welsh medium schools in Wales is that Welsh often has a higher social status. Minority language has a higher social status than the mainstream language. And I think that means things play out very differently than they do in the US, where Spanish is seen as a kind of deficit. And so I think English as a second language would be far more effective if the social status of Spanish was as high as the social status of English. And that's not what I see right now. School boards in the United States. I think it's wonderful that people have such local control over their school boards. I think some of them are very strange. So in my county, Bradford County in Florida, we elect the school board and we elect the superintendent, which leads to a very strange kind of democratic deficit where, you know, the board claimed to have a mandate for one thing and the superintendent claims a mandate for the contrary policy. I think the idea that education is funded locally is quite harmful in the United States context. So my problem is not so much with the school boards. I'd give most of those a C. The difficulty is the school boards are too small. And so the, the districts they serve are generally homogenous and there's little opportunity for redistribution. And I think I see very little prospect for improvement at a systemic scale in the United States without quite 
significant consolidation of school boards. So for me, it's not the school boards that the problem themselves, it's the fact that they're so small and they often represent tiny constituencies. The quality of teacher professional development in the United States. D. There's a lot of beliefs here that it has to be subject specific, and I don't think the research supports that. I think in many districts, teachers just have to rack up a number of certain uh, certain number of professional development hours to maintain their accredit- maintain their accreditation. And so, for me, the the problem is that just the detachment of the teacher professional development from teachers' lives. Now, there are some great examples of really effective practice-focused professional development. But until we get away from this idea of a certain number of workshops and towards this idea of job-embedded, practice-focused professional development, I think professional development is going to be largely irrelevant to the challenge of improving education in the U.S. Publicly funded private school choice. I think that's probably a D as well, not because I think it's a bad idea in principle. I'm, I have a lot of sympathy for Milton Friedman's idea that the state should provide ed- the money for education, but not necessarily provide the services. So I'm relaxed about how that education gets provided. What worries me is that when we have vouchers, the schools that w- engage in the voucher system are usually the schools that are struggling to fill their classrooms with fee-paying Uh, students. So I don't see the best private schools choosing to engage in this. And so I I don't think they're particularly helpful as a solution. I think they're quite an attractive political gimmick because it allows parents to have more agency. But I just worry about the schools that are actually getting this public money. I don't have strong view. I, I, I uh, I don't subscribe to the typical union view of this is public money being spent on private schools. Um, for me, what I'm much more worried about is what quality of education are the kids getting in those private schools? Last one, education reform in England. Uh, B minus. So most of what the government has done over the last, actually successive governments have done in the last 20, 30 years has had almost no impact. But we have one salient policy success uh, a man named Nick Gibb, who was the Deputy um, Secretary for Education in, in the U.S. context, um, got really focused on reading. And so he instituted a phonics check. So kids at the age of five, six, seven are tested on their knowledge of phonics. And it's a national test. Um, there's some problems with the test. But every teacher, if you run a teacher training institution in, in England, you have to make sure that your teachers are certified and and competent in using phonics-based approaches. They may not choose to use them all the time, but you will lose your accreditation as a teacher training institution if your teachers aren't able to use phonics in their practice. And the result in the most recent round of TIMS, uh, sorry, PEARLS, um, was that the the boy-girl reading gap in England was smaller than in any other rich country And I think England scored fourth overall in reading. So that's been a really slow burn over a a decade and a half. But that was one notable policy success. End on a win. All right. So I want to get back to formative assessment, but with a a twist. Uh, You've done some work on AI. How do you think AI can affect formative assessment? Right now, I'm skeptical because of... The, the length of the feedback loops in learning. So I think AI will actually considerably enhance teacher grading. So teachers will actually be able to feed students essays into uh, an AI package. We already know that AI can grade student essays as accurately as humans can, which sounds impressive until you realize that most humans aren't very good at this. So there's huge disagreement between two different humans and there's difference about the same size between the AI and the human. But there's also evidence that the AI misses really important details. So even when AI gives the same grade as a teacher to a piece of work about the, the Civil War, for example, that it can miss important characters being switched, for example. So I think it can help in summative work. I think my, my worry is this. 
AI is going to be trained on samples of work and it's going to improve the samples of work that students hand in. But in my view, the purpose of feedback is not to improve the work the students hand in. The purpose of feedback is to improve the learner. And the examples I've seen have the AI telling the student why they got a particular grade and what they would need to do to get a better grade. And the students can then do that and get a better grade for that piece of work. But I don't think it's helped the student. So I think right now, at a higher level, AI is a bit like a spell checker. It'll improve the quality of the spelling in the work that you hand in. It doesn't teach you how to spell. And because the feedback loops in education can be months or even years long, instruction that is effective over a year can be less effective over a two or three year span. I think that the teachers are still going to have to be at the heart of the process, hopefully having more free time because the AI is doing a lot of the standardized grading. So how does that stack up against your earlier concern that, well, maybe humans aren't so good at grading and perhaps the AI only needs to be better than teachers at understanding these feedback loops? I mean, are teachers doing this well in a way that AI couldn't supplement? I think... A lot of teachers aren't doing it that well, but I but I worry that as soon as you have the AI solution, it becomes the kind of de facto standard approach, and I want teachers to be focusing on learning. So yeah, we're not there yet, but I want to carry on working with teachers to help them frame feedback that improves the learner rather than improve the work, and that will get harder if the AI is involved in the business of giving the feedback. Uh, you know, we want to be clear that there are some great examples like Carnegie. Uh, Mellon's work on the cognitive tutor for algebra. But the incredible thing about that is it's been like 30 years in development and it's better than about 55% of math teachers, but not as good as the other 45%. So it turns out to be extraordinarily hard to automate what even average teachers do. And so therefore, I think until we are clear that the advice it's giving is not misleading, I think we should actually sandbox the AI to giving things where we know it can do it reasonably well and there are ways of checking on the accuracy. But there's a lot of folks who will argue there are big advantages to AI, even if it's not directly involved in instruction and that it can save instructors time to focus on instruction. This can be like with traditional tests. Uh, AI can have a, a good impact and free up time. How much potential do you think is there? Well, I think that AI for the novice teacher can help you plan lessons. So I, you know, I've been quite impressed with even the basic versions of ChatGPT and the kind of uh, resources they produce for lesson plans, for example. They're quite good at producing summaries of key historical events, you know, the cause of the First World War. You can then give that to students and say, summarize that and then critique it. So I think there's, there's a lot of kind of instructional materials that AI can produce provided the teacher is curating those resources. So I think it's going to save a huge amount of teacher time in terms of lesson preparation. I think the one place where it's not going to be helpful is in terms of feedback. So what do you think is the biggest danger for AI implementation? I mean, there's lots of folks who are nervous about, you know, data privacy and so forth. There's lots of dangers. What's your nightmare vision of an accidental implementation of AI in schools? I think there's a couple of different answers here, and it depends on the country. So I've been extremely disturbed by what I've seen happening in China, where kids in elementary schools have these kinds of electroencephalograms around, around their heads, which have colored lights, which tells the teacher how hard that kid is concentrating right now. And that's already happening in some schools, and the parents love it, and because they get a report every day about how hard their kid was concentrating in school. So I, I'm pretty sure that would never happen in the U.S. Um, my biggest worry, actually, is not with the AI itself. It's what the AI does to student motivation. So the idea that students say, well, what's the point of doing any work in school when the AI has all the answers? I'm not going to need to do any of this stuff. So I see societal changes being driven by AI that make it very much harder to motivate our students to do anything um, on the other hand, you know, if AI does produce all the value, we'll be like the ancient Greeks. They're, we don't have to work for a living. We can spend all our time in symposia, thinking deep thoughts and having great conversations and maybe playing musical instruments. So 
I think the real problem for me with AI is it just undermines so much of the rationale for our education system that we need to come up with a new, a new purpose of education for a life of leisure that it's currently far from being able to do. Let me ask you a question comparing two possibilities. Do you think that the upside of AI for teaching is greater than the upside of AI for students for cheating? Yes, I do. Because I think we are going to be able to manage this quite effectively. So a couple of ideas I mentioned. Yes, it helps teachers. It creates problems for teachers. You can't let the students take the work away and bring it back and claim that they did it. So what's the response? One is controlled conditions. The other is to use... And by controlled conditions, you just mean make them do the work in a classroom environment where you just wall off the AI or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. Explain. Yeah. 45 minutes. Explain to what extent does Shakespeare portray Lady Macbeth as a powerful woman? And you just free write it for 45 minutes. That's, by the way, an exam question from England. That shows you what kids are doing in England in literature classes. So I think that's an important part of it. But I think the other thing is we can have kids preparing documents using an online tool like Google Docs. And then as part of the submission for the final credit, they have to submit the source files. So the source files show that this wasn't just pasted in from somewhere else. This was a, a document that was created over a period of weeks with drafts and redrafts and edits and changes. It's not perfect, but I think that will actually go some way to um, giving students an incentive to work in a proper way on these things rather than just finding pieces of work they can just paste in and claim that they wrote it. So I think we will be able to do something in that way to ensure that the students understand the need to be working in genuinely and educationally sound ways. Like a blockchain. For each assignment, yeah. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. So one last thing I want to ask you about is de-implementation. So you've written on this, and from what I understand, you're somebody who thinks a lot about opportunity costs. So first, what is de-implementation, and why is it worth attention? Well, this is an interesting story because John Hattie and I and Aaron Hamilton have, for the last 10, 15 years, been talking about how should schools choose where to invest their priorities? You know, what should they do? And one of the things we've always done is to say, okay, so here's your priority. Are your teachers working as hard as they can right now? Yes. What are you going to take off their plates? And the strange thing is, school leaders, administrators, they can't do it. They can't take anything off teachers' plates. And for a while, we just thought these administrators are just being sort of thoughtless. And then we realized, actually, it's really hard. And so we decided that we probably need a formal, structured process to go through all the things that a school is doing to identify maybe these things that we're doing aren't contributing that much. So the big idea, and it's partly motivated by COVID, how do we get teachers their lives back? Because most teachers have just worked incredibly hard to mitigate the impacts of COVID on, on students. And also to create space for new initiatives. How do we give teachers a structure that enables them to work through things and be reasonably sure that we could scale back on this, we could replace it, we could reduce it, we could re-engineer, or we could just stop doing it completely without harming student effort. So it's basically, it's Pareto analysis for the educational world. It's looking at where you're putting in your effort, where you're getting your outputs, and maybe thinking about, could you reorganize your efforts in a way that produces the same output for less effort, which in itself would be a great outcome, I think. And maybe also then thinking about, could we actually then use that spare time to actually improve things by introducing new ideas? But the, the, the idea is that uh, we thought that de-implementation was just the opposite of implementation, but it's not. Because once something is implemented, it becomes part of the, the habit of the, the culture of the organization. And you need a careful process to help people step by step figure out where they can save time. But part of the logic is, is that if we're asking teachers and schools to do too much, so much so that 
maybe none of it is being done actually that well. And there's some evidence to suggest that that is the case, that perhaps the best program of improvement is to identify what you can take off their plate and then try and get them to reinvest their resources into the subset of things that you want them to concentrate on. Right. But the difficulty is that unless you do a fairly careful analysis, you might stop doing something that you can't see the purpose of, but actually is having a huge impact or a huge effect. So this is not necessarily implementation, but there's a huge debate in the US about giving students zeros for missing work. And some people say it's essential to motivate students. Some people say it's terrible. Here's my argument. People like Tom Gusky and Doug Reeves have been saying how terrible this is for 30 years. And yet the practice persists. So actually, let's find out why it persists. Let's examine what it is doing that people are obviously not appreciating before we try to take it away. So I think the reason that our implementation process is so complex is it's saying, well, what is sustaining these practices? Because actually, it might be quite important. You might not see the purpose of it, but it might be important to parents, might be important to students. Let's examine carefully where we might save time in order to avoid uh, making a change that has negative impacts on student outcomes. So that that sounds like a tall order. You know, that sounds like, well, we should probably de-implement, but it's very difficult to identify what. So, you know, straightforward answer. How do you make those difficult choices? When do you know when to cut and where? He asked the surgeon. Well, that's why the book is over 300 pages long. <laughs> Fair <laughs> it's, enough. It, it's actually telling people, so it, there's a procedure there for setting up a group that is given a formal mandate to de-implement. They look at all the things we might do, cutting back on homework, for example. How about not have, having teachers not doing wall display? How about having teachers using off-the-peg lesson plans rather than design their own? And people always throw up their hands in horror and say, well, you know, our kids are unique and we have to customize our lessons. Yeah, okay, fine. But here's the Pareto point. I accept, maybe, that your customized lessons might be slightly better than an off-the-shelf lesson plan, but are they enough better to justify the huge amount of time that you're spending on producing those resources? And so it's getting people to think in that way. Yeah, this might be a little bit less good, but is it worth the time we're spending? And the other thing, of course, with, with lesson plans, for example, is that you know I think in the US, we don't actually use textbooks well enough. Teachers customize their own resources. As I'm fond of pointing out, a collection of learning resources is no more a curriculum than a pile of bricks is a house. And what we have in the US is lots of individual lesson plans rather than coherent sequences of learning, which textbooks may well provide. So it's about getting people to think in that way and thinking about, yeah, this might be a little bit less good, but is it enough of a difference to make the time we're spending on achieving this slightly better outcome worth it? And in particular, are there other things we could do with that time? So Dylan, last question. It can be easy to kind of come off negative when you talk education reform and what schools need to do better. What do you think is one thing that we've gotten better at in education over the past decade or two? I think there's been increasing uh, acceptance in a number of settings that we need to up our game in teacher preparation. So I think that teacher preparation is now becoming, not it's not there yet, but it's becoming much more closely focused on the problems of practice. I think we have a long way to go. Uh, university departments of education, schools of education often aren't helpful here, but I think that a lot of pe people are making a lot of progress. We made huge progress in reading instruction. I see the states that have actually banned uh, three queuing. And so I think that we are on the, the brink of making substantial improvements in reading instruction in elementary schools. And I think that, you know, basically we are on a positive trajectory. COVID set us back, but I think we now have much better research evidence about what we can be doing and much better ways of getting that research evidence into the hands of teachers. So yeah, I'm positive. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Dylan William. We'll include links to some of Dylan's work in the show notes. You can subscribe to the report card on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, Take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.